Many of you know that I worked with Brother Andrew, best known as God Smuggler. He passed away last September, but before we, before that, we collaborated on a new book called Fearless by Faith, which will be released on August 1st. And this morning, I'd like to share a little from that devotional about how to combat our fears. Recently, I read in the New York Times that Americans are the most stressed people in the world. In a Gallup poll of more than 150,000 people around the world, 55% of adults in the United States said they experienced a lot of stress the previous day, compared to just 35% globally. 45% of Americans said they felt a lot of worry the day before, compared to a global average of 39%. In another study by the American Psychological Association, it warned that rampant anxiety has become a national mental health emergency. The effects are particularly noticeable among teens and younger adults. Unprecedented uncertainty is producing elevated stress and symptoms of depression. So what is causing Americans to wallow in fear? According to the survey, the top 10 fears were as follows. Loved ones dying, loved ones becoming seriously ill, mass shootings, not having enough money for retirement, terrorism, government corruption, becoming terminally ill, hate crimes, high medical bills, and widespread civil unrest. Clearly, there is much for us to fear. And yet, Jesus tells us, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm told there are 365 times in the Bible where we are told, do not be afraid. I didn't count them all, but I believe they are all there. In our gospel reading this morning, four times, we are exhorted, do not be anxious, have no fear, do not fear, fear not. And that's in the midst of being told that we are sheep among wolves and that we will be hated for his namesake. Clearly, scripture exhorts us not to live in fear. Believe in God, says Jesus, believe also in me. Sounds so simple. But for many Christians, it is clearly a struggle. Scripture tells us we are embroiled in a spiritual conflict. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. We are powerless against these forces of evil if we cower in fear. Okay, so how do we conquer fear? so that we can be God's instruments in the spiritual battle. The Bible does not give us a formula. Instead, it shows us men and women conquering their fears and becoming powerful tools for God in the midst of intense conflict. So this summer, over the next few months, we're going to look at five of those heroes who conquered their fear and were used mightily by God. For example, we will look at David, who was just a teenager when he faced a formidable giant that terrorized Israel. Of course, you know the story, but we're going to look a little more closely at the situation. 
because maybe David can show us how to confront and defeat our giants. Or consider Moses. He was retired. You don't begin your life work when you're 80 years old. Years earlier, Moses had influence, prestige, power, but he couldn't save his people from terrible injustice until God called him from the burning bush. Here's another example. Jonah. He went and preached to the most feared terrorist group of his day. Okay, maybe Jonah wasn't, was not fearless. He ran away from that assignment. But God gave him another chance, and God did a great miracle despite his bad attitude. And then there's Elijah. He was responsible for a climate crisis, declaring there would be no rain until he said so. He boldly confronted political corruption and a sick culture. How? The key, as Elijah explained, was that he stood before God. We're going to examine his life a little more next Sunday. We may tremble at the problems we face today. We may not think there's anything we can do, but there is. If we listen to God's call on our lives and then obey his instructions and engage in the spiritual battle. Those are the two elements that are necessary for fearless living today. This morning, we're going to examine one biblical warrior with whom I believe we can all readily identify. He's a nobody from the lowest echelon of society. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Judges chapter 6. And if you need a Bible, there should be one on the shelf in front of, in, on the chair in front of you. Let's examine together the story of Gideon. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6. I'm reading from verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. Now there's a sense of irony here. You see, these invaders actually have a strong link to the Israelites. It goes back to Abraham, who after the death of Sarah, married Keturah, who bore him six sons. One of them was Midian. Abraham gave gifts to Midian and his brothers and sent them away to the east, separating them from Isaac, who inherited Abraham's estate. Midian moved into what is now Saudi Arabia, settling in an area east of the Gulf of Aqaba. The Midianites were a nomadic people, a necessity given the rugged desert conditions. Moving around on their camels, they respected no boundaries and likely roamed a wide area looking for water and trade and trouble. 
It is no surprise that a caravan of Midianite traders purchased a teenage boy from his 11 jealous brothers and took him to Egypt, where they made a nice little profit selling him to Potiphar. A few hundred years later, Moses fled Egypt in Pharaoh's anger and settled in the land of Midian. The priest of Midian provided Moses a family for 40 years. We meet the Midianites again in numbers when they harass the Israelites. God told Moses, fight the Midians and strike them down. Before entering the promised land, Israel went to war with Midian and killed every male in their army, along with their five kings. Now, it's 200 years later, and Midian is back. The nomads covet the prosperity of Israel. Since God's people have violated their covenant, God allows them to be overrun and oppressed. The Hebrews no longer enjoy their homes and vineyards and pastures full of sheep and cattle. They hide in the mountains, in caves and in dens. Rather than thriving, they barely survive. They are imprisoned by fear. Now this fear is very real. But is Midian really the problem? Moses preached that if Israel did not obey all that God commanded, a host of curses would crush them. Here are a few details. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall build a house, but you will not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your sheep will be given to your enemies. In case they miss the point, Moses provided this summary. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. I wonder today if American Christians fail to recognize the root cause of many of the problems we face. War, natural disasters, pandemics, addictions, and more. They should force us to go to God repent and discover what he may be revealing to us. Verse 6, Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. I have to wonder, why did it take them seven years to cry out for help? Maybe they thought they could solve the problem of Midian themselves? Perhaps they thought a change in political leadership would make the difference. Perhaps they thought they could throw more money at the problem, build better tanks, mount a stronger defense. Did anyone realize this was a curse? Well, at least they prayed. The answer to their prayers was a prophet. We don't know his name. We just know he brought a word from God. His message is in verses 8 through 10 of Judges 6. The sermon was short but powerful. Three points. You have forgotten your history. You have forgotten your God. You have not obeyed God. I wonder if we should view this simple message as a mirror for our own fears here in America. Unfortunately, too many Christians do not spend enough time in this book. This book answers all three issues the prophet identified. Is it really necessary that we find ourselves in deep trouble before we open the word? 
Well, if it takes a disaster or a crisis to get someone to read the scriptures, God will use that. The words of prophet are not enough to produce a change in Israel. The Midianite horde was a constant reminder that they were in over their heads. Someone needed to step up and lead. Well, let's look at verses 11 and 12. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joas, the Abirazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So, meet Gideon. He's hiding. He threshes wheat in a wine press, which is a pit that was carved out of rocky ground. It was a modest hiding place where he could grind a little grain for his family. An angel comes to him with a very specific message. There are two parts to God's revelation to Gideon. The first, the Lord is with you. Really? Gideon did not believe God was with Israel, much less with him personally. God was with Abraham and Moses and Joshua, but me, Gideon, I'm a nobody. God doesn't even know I exist. I'm just trying to survive without attracting attention from the invaders. Have you ever felt that way? Talk about a poor self-image. Gideon could not slink much lower in his thinking. And that truth makes the second revelation even more shocking. Oh, mighty man of valor. <laughs> Gideon must think that God has him confused with someone else. What about that great archer in the tribe of Ephraim? Or maybe Joachim, who lives a few doors down. He's a bodybuilder, and no one can pin him in a wrestling match. That explains it, right? The angel went to the wrong address. Listen to Gideon's protest in verse 15. How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. How sad that Gideon only understands his miserable condition, his helplessness, his bondage. He is steeped in fear. Now, it's obvious that someone needs to step up and confront the Midianite problem. But Gideon's not about to volunteer, and that's a good thing. Because if we try and manufacture courage, we're almost certain to fail. We need courage that will persevere in the heart of battle, and that is what God provides. You are the man, Gideon. You are a mighty warrior. This is a very important point. God is prepared to make a new beginning with anyone who's available, even the least of the least. And we can have confidence when God calls us because he says, I am with you. Of course, Gideon's circumstance after the angel speaks, they haven't changed. And yet everything has changed because God has arrived and called Gideon. Looking at our circumstances today, whether cultural or political, a family crisis or a health pandemic, if you feel the situation is hopeless, you're looking in the wrong direction because God is here. 
God is calling us. He's calling you. That means God is with you and will equip you with everything you need for battle. Listen to the final words of Jesus in Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the starting point we need to conquer our fear and prepare for spiritual battle. Now, it's only natural that Gideon has a few questions. Verse 13, Gideon said to the angel, Please, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Good question. But God doesn't answer the question. Verse 14, Go in the might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? No doubt Gideon thinks, what might? Which naturally leads to his next question. Verse 15, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? God's answer in verse 16, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now, some have criticized Gideon for asking too many questions. They say he should not have put out the fleece, that God's word ought to be enough. However, God doesn't rebuke Gideon because they are in a relationship. God welcomes our questions. As long as we understand, we don't need answers to those questions in order to obey God's call. Gideon's questions don't change the fact that God has called Gideon to go and save Israel. And since God is with Gideon, the details that he needs will be revealed along the way. So, Gideon clearly recognizes his weakness. What will God provide if Gideon is really to solve the problem of Midian? Jump down with me to Judges 6, verse 34. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Here is a secret of spiritual warfare. The Holy Spirit is the primary resource God provides to fulfill his mission. Now, at first, that sounds like a contradiction to God's introductory call. Gideon was told, go in your strength. And Gideon protested, but God, I have no strength. Which is absolutely correct. Your strength is the spirit of God. God provides his spirit to each of the warriors we study in the Bible, whether David or Elijah or Moses, even Jonah. In the Old Testament, the spirit wasn't given to the general population. People depended on God's hand-selected, spirit-directed spokespersons. But today, as followers of Christ, each one of us is gifted with the Holy Spirit. This spirit brings us peace in the midst of turmoil. He guides us into all truth, using primarily the word of God in Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ. It is Jesus living in us. He is the life of the vine. Jesus said if we should abide in him, the vine, apart from this connection, we can do nothing. So Gideon has the single most critical resource for his assignment, the presence of God that has clothed him. Now notice the circumstances have not changed. Not one of those 120,000 Midianites has been eliminated. And that is a terrifying situation, except for Gideon, 
he now has a relationship with God. He is clothed with God's Spirit, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. So Gideon, while everyone around you is in panic mode and no one experiences peace, you remain calm, ready to respond to the direction of God's Spirit. That is the confidence we can have as followers of Christ. We have a peace based exclusively on the peace that Jesus brought about on the cross. Still, Gideon could use a few more soldiers. So Gideon recruits an army, winds up with 32,000 men. That's still just a quarter of what the enemy has, but much better than being all alone. However, God says there are too many. So, first, anyone who's afraid, go home. And 22,000 clear out. 10,000 remain. Gideon's army is now outnumbered 12 to 1. And yet God is not done. Gideon is ordered to take the men down to the stream where they will be tested. One group kneels down to drink. The other group scooped up water and put their hands to their mouths. Those were the ones God chose. Just 300 total. Well, what are those 9,700 going to do? Or the 22,000 who were sent home? Well, they can pray and later participate in the mop-up operation. All of this leads to one crucial point. This is God's fight. Gideon and 300 men have to face the enemy, but God is actually the one doing the fighting. That is the difference between a, that this is the difference a relationship with God makes when the angel of the Lord first appeared to Gideon he was afraid working in secret with no confidence whatsoever now he is transformed and filled with the spirit and ready for action we don't have time to go into the actual battle you can read about it what happens in Judges chapter 7 but observe that the story of Gideon shows us that spiritual warfare is not conducted as the world fights war. The world relies on raw power, intellectual intimidation, lies, large amounts of money, and ever-increasing technical innovation. Our God is far more creative. When he calls us into battle, he equips us with unusual tools. We are likely to be understaffed, certainly not in the majority. But filled with his spirit, we actually have an advantage. So what lessons can we learn from Gideon? Well, first I would note that there is no formula for fighting God's battles. Just look at scripture and you will see many examples. We all know the story of the Battle of Jericho. Joshua was told to march around the city for seven days, after which the walls collapsed and Israel's army charged in and wiped out the city. That strategy was never repeated. The next battle was one with trickery. The soldiers of Ai were drawn out into an ambush. On another occasion, Joshua defeated five kings and their armies when God rained hail on them. You see, God loves to surprise us and his enemies with a host of creative creative battle plans. And that leads to my second application. 
It is best if we allow God to establish the strategy for our battles today. Gideon might think he needs thousands of men to defeat Midian. God said he would choose the team, and in his plan, 300 were plenty, because God was doing the fighting. Over and over, we see that God's people are given explicit instructions. We ignore them at our own peril. And then third, do not minimize the ability of the army, the enemy, to self-destruct. God may initiate confusion in their ranks. In many situations, the aggressors destroy themselves. That's what happened to the Midianite horde. And I would suggest that can still happen today. If you followed the news yesterday from Russia, it may have reminded you as it reminded me of how 33 years ago, we saw communism implode in Eastern Europe through the peaceful protests of Christians. The Soviet Union collapsed without a single shot being fired. One problem today is that we prefer solutions we can understand and control. We put great stock in a political savior who will right all the wrongs of a nation. Charles Colson, former special assistant to President Richard Nixon, was known by associates to say that the kingdom of God will never arrive on Air Force One. Our political, cultural, and intellectual leaders rarely recognize that there is a hidden spiritual enemy who constantly sows discord, lies, and confusion. We who are citizens of God's kingdom are God's tools to counter the agenda of this enemy. Men and women, spiritual warfare is raging around the globe. There is an enemy who wants to destroy the church, the body of Christ, the dramatic increase in persecution of Christians is the most striking evidence. One in six Christians worldwide suffer from violence or severe discrimination because they choose to follow Jesus. But we don't need to be afraid. We heard Jesus in our gospel reading this morning that he was sending us out as sheep among wolves. <coughs> our Lord wants nothing more than to involve us in his plans to grow his kingdom. But it will happen by his methods. Jesus said we will get in trouble with authorities. And by his spirit, he will give us the words to speak. We must do his work by his methods. Yes, we need spiritual warriors today. Men and women who will reveal the spiritual power of Christ and the Holy Spirit, who will take on the assignments God gives that will confront the politics and culture and the spiritual forces of wickedness that run rampant in our age. Our mission is laid out for us in Matthew 28. Jesus has said that all authority in heaven and earth are his, therefore go and make disciples. Our task is to share the love of God with people who are hostages of Satan in a world under his control. To be sure, we cannot hope to carry out any of this by our own power. But like Gideon, we are not powerless. We know God. We are united with Christ. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. What more do we need?
Amen.